Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, if you would, please open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, if you're visiting with us or if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the back there. That's our gift to you. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 6, let me review. We started studying this most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, about six months ago. And 21 sermons later, here we are. Uh, And dear friends, I I pray that the Lord really has taught you as much as he has me. It's just been a wonderful time in God's word and really slowing down and thinking through and praying through what the Lord is teaching us here. I pray that we as a church, we really do continue to welcome these things and and apply these life-altering principles because they are life-altering. They they will change your life. The Lord Jesus will, will change your life. He's done that through his grace and now through his word. And before we, we dive into chapter 6 here, I think it's important to review why it took so long to get here. Uh, if you want to look at your Bible and just flip back to Matthew chapter 5, uh, I'd like to walk us through the different elements of what Jesus has taught us so far. And the reason that this is important is because Jesus, what he does, he makes a shift in his preaching today. Jesus started off with the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. And the Beatitudes are a list of things that are meant to drive us to our knees. The Beatitudes describe mankind's biggest problem. We're broken. We're clueless. We are inept spiritually. I didn't hear any amens on that. That was a great place for that, though. The Beatitudes, they they were never intended to be some sort of social gospel to improve society, but rather a personal revelation of our own spiritual bankruptcy, which leads to repentance. Repentance is the turning from our old life and embracing Christ in our new. Repentance is asking, it is begging for forgiveness for our sins, making things right with the people that we've hurt, And then making the choice to leave that old life of sin behind. And after that sobering message, Jesus then moved and he taught how the disciples are to be salt and light. In verses 13 through 16, the message of salt and light is where the Lord teaches us how to respond to the world in all of its darkness. And then at the same time, how the world then reacts to us as Jesus' disciples. We as the church actually hold back evil because the Lord taught us we act as a preservative. That's what salt is, right? But it also adds flavor. And at the same time, we provide truth to a dark world by supplying light. 
Verses 17 through 20, Jesus then taught us how he himself is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. And this is amazing to me because it's, it's one thing to read or hear about the Savior of the world, but it's another to look at him face to face like they did. I think that is so fun and so cool. Jesus moved then into a time of comparison in verses 21 through 48. What Jesus did here is he, he juxtaposed what the scribes and the Pharisees said versus what God said. He set the Pharisees' teachings and then God's laws up side by side. Remember, he, he said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So what Jesus did there is he corrected the scribes, he corrected the Pharisees, because they had a weak, they had a superficial set of moral standards that they pulled from Scripture. Jesus corrected their theology because what they did is they lowered God's perfect standard and they raised their own. So now it seemed like everybody was on the same playing field, and that's not how God works. And then they taught the sinful standard. This is, this is tragic. What they did is they then taught their their moral standards, right? Um, their sinful standard as God's perfect standard. It's a wonderful thing that we don't have anybody doing that today. That was a joke. So that's a review from the last six months. Today, uh, we begin Matthew chapter 6. Jesus makes a transition here in his sermon, and it's a big one. Uh, in chapter 5, Jesus focused on the correct teachings of the law, which led to a proper interpretation of the law. So Jesus, really, he was focusing on our hearts for the past six months. He was preparing us for this transition. He concentrated on our character. And now Jesus, really, what he does, he moves from our heads and our hearts to our hands. And this is so important because what we believe inwardly, it's going to display itself out, outwardly, isn't it? So in other words, how you view the world, how you interpret Scripture, because everybody's a theologian, it doesn't just stay in your head and in your hearts. We all live out what we believe. So let me give you a disclaimer before we dive in here. If you, if you thought some of the things that Jesus taught us in chapter 5 were painful... <laughs> mm, yeah it doesn't get any easier my friend Matthew chapter 6 really it could be one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read and apply to our lives as disciples of Jesus why is that because it's like a mirror there's no other chapter in scripture that is so intentional to either nurture humility in our lives or hammer home humiliation. We have a choice. Humility, humiliation. So Matthew chapter 6 is a time of self-examination. It's a time of spiritual reflection. Jesus brings us face to face with ourselves. So he's enabling us to see ourselves exactly as we are. Now, before you guys get up and start running for the door... Let me add this. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a wonderful gift to us. And here's the reason why. Because we get to see ourselves for who and what we truly are. 
We, we really are, apart from the grace of God, right? We are the walking dead spiritually. We've got no hope of salvation apart from the grace of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then when we understand that, we have a deeper appreciation for the gift of himself through Christ. We have a deeper appreciation of God's word. We got a deeper appreciation of God's family. And when we start to realize like, wow, God chose me and I received that and now I'm a child of God, we start to ponder that and think about that. Why on earth the God of the universe decided to do that for me? Why? Why did he give me eternal life instead of eternal death? You start thinking about that, guys, and it will change your life forever. And changing you forever is precisely the point. So if you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word of Matthew chapter 6, verses, verses 1 and following. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Well, truly, I tell you, they've got their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And dear friends, this is the, the very words from the inerrant and the inspired and the infallible word of God. Please be seated. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 1. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So we've got so much to learn from this verse. This is where we're going to camp out for most of our morning here. And the reason for that is if we don't understand what Jesus is teaching here in verse 1, we're going to miss the value in Jesus' illustration when it comes to money and prayer and possessions coming up next week. So in, in verse number 1, he says, be careful. So note to self, when Jesus says, be careful... We need to be careful, right? We need to slow down. We need to see what he wants us to be careful of. Your translation may say, beware, take heed. And it may even say, watch out. Prosecco in the Greek, beware. It's a present active verb, meaning it's an action word. He wants us to do something here. He wants us to listen and hear or pay a close attention to what he's getting ready to say next. So the idea for us as disciples of Jesus, he wants us to be on the lookout. We got to put our guard up and, and, and be on guard against something. So the question is, what is the something? He tells us, verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. So practice is this idea of performance. So don't get into the habit of doing this. Doing what? Well, practicing your righteousness in front of other people. Righteousness, it's a big swanky word, right? The way that we, we are to live rightly. Um, 
the word in the Greek is dikaiosune, and it comes from the root word dike, which is justice. And I think that's really interesting here, which brings us to key point number one. Righteousness is living rightly according to God's word. This idea of righteousness, because we, t- we hear that word a lot in the scriptures, especially in the gospels, it is living rightly, and here's the key, according to God's word. So as disciples of Jesus, we don't just make life up, do we? That's what the world does. An unbeliever, in his, uh, an unbeliever is his own source of truth. He is his own authority, but not us. As disciples of Jesus, we have an anchor for our lives. So if we got a question about how to be a good employee, Scripture tells us. If we got a question about money, Scripture tells us. If we have a question about how to raise children, grandchildren, Scripture tells us. See, the Bible is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It's, it's supernatural. It's, it's not from the world because it has God as its author. The psalmist says this, and I love this. We see the fruit here of having God's word as our authority. In Psalm 106, how happy are those who uphold justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Not just to be seen by others, but practice righteousness at all times. The fruit of of living righteously is, is happiness. All in favor of happiness? Amen, right? So back to verse one here, be careful not to practice your your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Jesus says, notice that phrase there, in front of others. So here we have the big picture. We see a motivation, don't we? We see an agenda going on. That phrase there, to be seen, your translation may say, to be noticed. Uh, The Greek there is theame in Greek. And it's the term, we get our, our, our English word theater, theme, theater, theater, theme. So the point here is what we do and how we behave in the presence of other people. So in other words, why do we do certain things in front of people that we normally don't do when we're alone? And Jesus provides an example here in verse 2. He goes on to say, so whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you. Don't bring attention to yourself as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by the people. Oh, you are so righteous given to the poor like that. Oh, that's great that you you dug a well in Africa. Oh, that's great that you've done this and that. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Be very, very careful. So long before the world called fake Christians hypocrites, Jesus already did. So let's talk about hypocrisy, because as we go through the gospel of Matthew, Jesus has a lot to say about it, and he is not a fan. In the Old Testament, hypocrisy comes from those who are godless. Um, This godless person was, was either opposed to God, or he was forgetful of God, one of the two. And although the Jews were concerned about pretense, Or in sincerity, there's not really a Hebrew word equivalent to hypocrisy. But we do see the theme throughout the Old Testament. So let me give you a couple examples here. 
prophet Isaiah, or the Lord speaks through Isaiah here in 29.13, and he says this, these people, so the Jews, they approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, and yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their, their worship of me. So that's just a classic definition of how a a hypocrite acts, saying one thing and, and doing another. The book of Job conveys this idea of godlessness and hypocrisy at the, at the same time, chapter 8, verse 13. Job writes this, such is the destiny of all who forget God, the hope of the godless, or we could say the hope of the hypocrite, will perish. Job thirteen sixteen, for no godless person, no hypocritical person can appear before God. And finally, in, in chapter 27, verse 8, for what hope does the godless person, the hypocritical person, have when he is cut off, when God takes away his life? So it's a rhetorical question, obviously. I mean, we all know that godless hypocrites, they have no, no hope apart from God. So key point number two, notice this, hypocrisy, Hypocrisy is never treated lightly in Scripture. Hypocrisy is never treated lightly in Scripture. It is always treated as a major offense. It is a sin. And we see a perfect example of this in the prophet Amos. Amos lived about 750 years before Jesus Amos was not part of the religious institution. He was not a scribe. He was not a Pharisee. And I love Amos because he was not a professional pastor, right? He wasn't like me. He's a layman like you guys. He reminds me of Stephen in the book of Acts. Um, and that's very important for us to, to read or to know, really, as you read through Amos' book. Now, professionally, Amos, he was a shepherd, even though he, he wasn't part of the institution, he was still a shepherd. He was still guiding God's people. He was also a fig farmer. That's how he made his money. He's a blue-collar guy. And one of the key themes in the book of Amos is religious hypocrisy. So God speaks through Amos, and he says, look at this. Chapter 5, verse 21. This is God speaking. He says, I hate. And it's almost like God says, you know what? That's not strong enough. I despise, I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Your, the, the solemn assemblies there, that's, that's the worship service. So think of the worst smell that you've ever had stuck in your nostrils. The most foul smell. God says, that's what your worship is like to me. And then he goes on, verse 22, he says, even if you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. I have no, reg no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. I'm not even going to listen to the music of your harps. God says that Israel's worship music is, is only noise. So we've got a stench, in, God has a stench in his nostrils and he's got noise in his ears. 
as the Jews come to worship him. Dang, right? Now here's the thing. All of those religious things, all of those religious acts, the feast, the worship service itself, the assemblies, the the gathering together, all the different form of, of offering and giving back to God, those things had been ordained by God. But because these acts became chores, they were no longer acceptable to God. See, God designed the feast and the offerings and these songs for the Jews to get to know God. But they didn't get to know him personally. They didn't want a relationship with God. They they simply wanted to do their religious duty, right? Their chore. And when they got done with the chore, they could bolt. They think to themselves, well, you know what? I, I made God happy today. Check. Now it's time to go have some fun. Because that worship stuff is just awful. That's dreadful. I hate to do it, but I'm going to go do it. And God calls them out on it. So the Jews were doing the right things, but they were doing the right things for the wrong reason. And that is called hypocrisy. And this is so important for us to grasp. History has shown us time and time again that outside of idolatry, the greatest sin that the Jews committed was hypocrisy. The consequences of idolatry and hypocrisy, they are so severe that the Jews, they were conquered as a nation and taken into captivity because of it, not once, but time and time again. So in other words, God allowed these pagan nations to capture the Jews and make them slaves. Now, why would God allow that? Well, we have to look at the reality of what sin is. Sin has consequences. A sin is a moral crime against God. And all crimes must be judged and and paid for by somebody. That's why Israel was hauled off as slaves. That was their punishment. That was their judgment. And then secondly, their worship, it wasn't worship. It was mockery. They They were present physically, yes, but they weren't. They weren't there spiritually. They weren't there emotionally. They were singing the hymns, but they weren't singing them from their heart. They weren't paying attention to the word of God. They were were tuned out. And yet God wants righteousness. He wants purity. Not for us to perform these mindless, endless rituals in a vacuum or, or alone on some kind of island. He wants a relationship. See, God has spoken, and he's told us how to do this, right? We we don't come to God on our own terms. He's told us how to worship, and he's told us how to do that through his word. So God speaks also through the Old Testament prophet Hosea, and he says this. Hosea 6.6. God says, I desire. I take pleasure in. I delight in. Well, who doesn't want to know what God delights in, right? I delight in faithful love. Not all these sacrifices. I I delight that you know me, the knowledge of God, rather than all these burnt offerings. All these sacrifices are a way for you to get to know me. That's not the end. It's part of the means. See, God has always wanted a relationship. And as we fast forward to to the first century with Jesus here, Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites 
because of their disconnect between their external actions and their internal attitudes. So in other words, time changes nothing. The Jewish religious leaders, they, they never changed. And that's why Jesus has so much to say about hypocrisy. We see this all over the Gospels. Hypocrites could interpret the weather, but not the signs of the times in Luke 12. Hypocrites were more concerned about the rules for the Sabbath than a woman's physical health in Luke chapter 13. Luke also noted that the religious leaders, they pretended to be sincere when when they asked Jesus about paying money to Caesar, paying taxes, in Luke chapter 20. However, the the most famous discussion of hypocrisy is in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, The religious leaders did not practice what they preached here, and Jesus calls them out on it. Jesus compared these men, these religious men, to dishes that were clean on the outside, but filthy on on the inside. Now, let me ask you, how sick would you get if you only cleaned the outside of your dishes and you kept using them meal after meal after meal? I mean, how gross is that? (laughs) Jesus compares these godly men to those nasty, disgusting, sinful dishes. How about this? Jesus compared the Pharisees to a whitewashed corpse. Now, I'm not trying to be crass or insensitive here, but... It doesn't matter how good a dead body looks on the outside, does it? It's still dead. See, hypocrisy was a problem for the early church. We see this in the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, they sold some land, and then they, they lied about it. They kept more than what they They said. So what's God do? Well, God strikes them both dead for their hypocrisy. It was was instant justice. They got what they deserved. Little sermon in a sermon. That's why you never want to pray or ask for what you deserve. (laughs) See, we, we, we look at that story and we go, wait a second. Come on now. Did God overreact there? Was he having a bad day? Was God a bit grumpy? No, dear friends. God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead because he doesn't want hypocrites meddling in his church. Get this. He didn't want fake believers polluting the bride's purity just as he doesn't today. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe just maybe he ought to bring that strategy back. I thought that was funny. You guys. Well, we see the hypocrisy being dealt with in the epistles as well. Uh, Paul accused Peter of hypocrisy for refreshing, for refusing to eat with the Gentile Christians in Antioch uh, in Galatians 2. We see it when Paul warned Timothy about hypocritical false teachers in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, We see it when Peter included hypocrisy as one of the attitudes that Christians should avoid altogether in in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well. And now that we've seen this awful sin all throughout Scripture, let's discuss what it is. Let's learn from other people's mistakes here. 
Hupokrates. Hupokrates. That's the Greek word from which we get hypocrite. Hypocrite. And it literally means mask wearer. So, Hupokrates. These guys were actors in the Greek theater who wore masks. And not just any mask either. These guys were, they were exaggerated. They were excessive in their form. So, when you went to go watch a play, these masks, they had epic smiles, real big smiles, right? They had immense frowns. And they, they did that so that people, even in the back row, they could see what was going on. They could see the emotion that was being portrayed on the stage. So a hypocrite was an actor in the theater on the stage. So when actors take on a role, right, they pretend to be somebody they're not. We get the word two-faced from it. Someone who has two faces, someone who has a public face and a private face. In public, he says certain things, or he does certain things to conceal his, his true feelings. So a hypocrite is insincere. He is a liar. A hypocrite acts in a way that is inconsistent with his true character. Jesus gave a blistering tongue lashing to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He judges them. He says, woe to you. And then he calls them hypocrites, not once, not twice, not three times, six times. And here's the primary reason that Jesus is so stern on the sin of hypocrisy. Key point number three. Hypocrisy is the outward sin of using religion to cover up an inward sin. Hypocrisy is the outward sin of using religion, today we could say God's word, to cover up something on the inside. I've got something going on. There's an inward sin I don't want anybody to know about. So, you know, we've all read the headlines you got a priest, you got a pastor, you got a minister, he falls from grace. You got a guy who, a pastor who embezzles money over here. We've got a minister who is addicted to pornography over there. What we have to understand is that a hypocrite is not someone who occasionally sins and then repents of that sin, never doing that again. A hypocrite is someone who deliberately sins and they use religion, they use God's word to cover up his sins and then promote his own agenda. And this is why I, I beg you guys over and over and over again to be so careful of who you're listening to on the radio, the podcast, the social media, the books that you're reading. Because it only takes one or two degrees to be off and then a couple years down the road, everything gets wonky. Please be careful. So back to verse 1, Jesus continues here. He says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So we discussed the, the consequences of, of hypocritical sin earlier. Jesus now gives us the consequence if we ignore him on this. And the consequence is that we're going to forfeit some of our rewards from our heavenly Father. So why would the Christian hypocrite receive no reward from his Father in heaven? Answer, because he already got his reward from someone here on earth. We're going to learn more next Sunday in verse 2 where Jesus starts talking about money. 
and how to give that correctly. See, the Christian hypocrite received his reward from people. He, he received all the honor, all the admiration, all the praise from certain men and women. So in other words, the Christian hypocrite got precisely what he wanted, and now it's gone. Notice here that this is a self-serving temporary reward. And that's why the hypocrite continues to act the way that he does. For him to keep getting the reward, he, he must continue playing the part. So dear friends, no disciple of Jesus, and this is really important, none of us are immune from the temptation of acting like somebody that we're not. We've all got that temptation. And that brings us full circle back to verse 1. That's why Jesus says, be careful, beware, take heed on this. We, we got to put our guard up. So we as disciples, we got to guard against this tendency to want to be seen, to be admired by other people. And, you know, we can be so subtle at this. We can drop a hint at our Bible study class, letting everybody know how smart we are. We can make a, a seemingly offhanded comment about our service to the, to the food bank or to the poor or just mention, you know, just by chance, I'm on the, this new board or this new committee. I just want you to know that when we do these things, we forfeit God's eternal divine reward. Big difference there. So finishing up verse 1 here. Jesus says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So note here, Jesus is now shifting. We're going from chapter 5 to chapter 6. Notice what he does here. He's moving away from focusing on the scribes and the Pharisees to now your Father in heaven here in chapter 6. Now, there's a lot of things that we can discuss when it comes to the hypocritical life, but I, I wanted to mention, I want to mention church life when it comes to hypocrisy, because one of, one of Satan's most effective strategies to undermine the power of the local church is through hypocrisy. Hypocrisy generally comes in two forms when it shows up tangibly at the door. The first is that of non-believers masquerading as Christians. And the second is that of true believers who are spiritually immature, but yet they're pretending to be overly spiritual. And the warning that Jesus gives us here in verse 1 applies to both groups. So let me address the non-believing uh, person that's acting as a Christian. One of the, the primary reasons that we here at the church, we've got certain church policies set up and structures set up, is to protect y'all and the church within the church family. My job as the pastor of this church is really fourfold. It is to teach you, it is to preach the gospel, it is to lead, yes, but it is also to protect you. When I was commissioned four years ago, I got to tell you, I had no idea how big a part of the job that would be. People coming in with all these wonky things, they say are from Scripture, but they're not. I mean, we got all the spiritual New Age stuff going on in Sedona, right? We got all the synchronism of, of things happening here in Cottonwood and, and Camp Verde. We've got all the demonic stuff happening in Jerome. This is a, it's, it's a wonky place spiritually. So we have to 
We have to be like the Bereans, don't we? We got to test what you're being told. We have to. And especially for me and this pulpit, make sure I'm on, I'm teaching you the right things. I certainly don't want you taking this thing and just, and just agreeing with everything that I'm saying. Please don't do that. So this, this idea of protection is the primary reason that everybody who wants to be a part of the church starts with the foundations class. Foundations class is a 13-week class where I, as the pastor, I get to know you, you get to know me. This is where you also get to, to meet other people in the church. It really is a lot of fun. It's a great class. You get to learn the mission of the church, the vision of the church, the culture of the church, the very DNA, why we even exist. And it's where we also talk about the very foundations of the Christian faith. And that, I tell you, all of that is really, really important because people come in and they say they're Christians all the time. But you know what? If they don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin and if Jesus didn't walk out of his grave three days later, we got a problem, don't we? And I, I just don't want to argue with people that, that don't see that, that don't believe that week after week. So it's, it's really good that we got to discuss systematic theology on the onset, right from the very start. So here's the good news. Because it is a three-month commitment to that class, um, the wolves don't make it. The fakes don't even sign up, they, or, or they eventually drop out. And here's the reason. Why? Why don't they make it, and why do they drop out? Because hypocrites and wolves, they want easy targets. And guys, I love you too much for people to come in here and mislead you or devour you. That's why we do that. Second form of hypocrisy that shows up at our door is, is that of true believers who are they're, they're immature spiritually, but they pretend to be spiritually uh, overly spirit, spiritual. They act like they know or have been walking with the Lord longer than they have. Now, sometimes the blame lies with me as, as the pastor or pastors in general. Um, keep in mind, it is our job to constantly urge and, and encourage you to become spiritually mature. It's also my job to reprimand and rebuke things when they go sideways and sometimes I, I do the rebuking in love, and sometimes I'm irritated, and I've got a bad day too. Right? But please know this. I don't ever, ever, ever want to guilt you guys or put pressure on you in any way for anything, especially to grow up too quickly spiritually. Because when that happens, hypocrisy, it sneaks in the door. Psalm 1 reminds us that spiritual growth is like a tree. It takes a really long time to grow. We've got to stop doing what we've always done. Okay, that's impossible. And we've got to turn to Christ. Okay, well, how do I do that? I've got to be taught how to do that. It takes a long time. It takes a lifetime, doesn't it? And even so, we, we, might, we might get fearful, you know, thinking that uh, we might be rejected if we're not as far along as everybody else. So what do we do? We put a mask on. We put a mask on to prevent that from happening. 
And guys, I'm, I'm begging you not to do that. The reality is that no two people in here are in the same place spiritually. And that's the beauty of the church. That's why your church family needs you because we're all so different. Because without you, we're all hurting. The whole church is hurting. But here's the deal. We want the real you. We don't want the you wearing a mask. So I'm going to close with a couple questions here. Number one, why would you put a mask on in the first place? Many of us put a mask on to pretend, to pretend to be somebody that we're not. We want to look good. We want to be on our best behavior. We want people to like us. Question number two, well, why would you pretend to be someone else or, or someone that you're not? Why do you want someone to like you? Everybody, everybody wants to be liked. Do you know that God has remarkably and wondrously made you? God created you. He, he knit you in your mother's womb. Think about the time spent doing that. He loves you more than you can ever fathom. So question number three, are you wearing a mask to hide your imperfections? Mm. Maybe we're trying to hide the person that we used to be before we came to Christ. You don't need to do that. You're a new creation. Hiding is what Adam and Eve did. They wanted to protect themselves. And the irony is that they were trying to protect themselves from God, who is the only one who can undo what they did. So they were trying to keep God away. They were trying to self-help themselves out of this mess. And the same goes for us today. And at some level, we still wear masks. And we wear these masks because we're trying to protect the identity that we've created over the years. We wear, we wear masks because we fear being rejected or even abandoned. And lastly and sadly, we wear our masks because we fear not being loved. But here's, here's the thing about wearing masks, and this is so important. The temporary love that you receive from others, it doesn't go to you. That love goes to the mask that you're wearing. People don't love hypocrites for who they are. They love hypocrites for what they've done as they're performing wearing the mask. So in other words, they love the mask. They don't love you as the person. And that's a primary reason we feel so alone today. It's why so many of us are depressed anxious, why we can't sleep, because very few people truly know who we are. And we still believe that demonic lie that says, you know what, if you really knew me, you wouldn't want to hang around with me. And that is a lie straight from hell. It is. We got to remember that God is a God of love. God is a relational being. All of our problems that we have, ultimately, they, they have to do with relationships. 
And relationships are a sign of the cross, right? We've got our, our relationship with God that is vertical, and we have our relationship with people that is horizontal. God, people, that's the cross. So I want to invite you to embrace this cross of Christ like never before, this, this new year. And maybe, just maybe, little by little in doing that, we can take off our mask and reveal and live out of who God says that we are. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for the truth that comes out of it. Thank you for, for teaching us the, the history of hypocrisy and, and really when we walk out this door this morning, how we can apply all of these things to our life. And I pray, Father, that you meet us right where we are. What is the one thing? What's, what's the one thing that I'm, I'm putting up? I'm wearing a mask on. Lord, would you deal with that, that one thing this week? Would you deal with that one thing this year? And as we learn and other people learn to take off our mask, may we be very aware of what you're doing. That as we become more loving, as we become to love others around us more because we're learning to do this, that we also learn to love you more. We've got nothing to hide. We've got nothing to prove. Lord, you've adopted us through the blood of Christ. And with that, all we can say is thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.